Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome to the podcast, maggots. I am your senior podcast host, Aaron, along with Full Metal Jacket recruit, Patrick. Patrick, from now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewer will be, sir. Do you understand that? Sir, yes, sir. Bullcrap, I can't hear you. Sound off like you've got a pair. Sir, yes, sir. Much better, much better. <laughs> you have potential, okay? <laughs> we'll say that. Potential. All right, <laughs> listeners. Well, obviously, you know what movie we are talking about tonight and why that little intro was a lot of fun. Full Metal Jacket is Kubrick's Vietnam War film made in 1987 and based off a novel called The Short Timers, written by Gustav Hasford. This week, we're wrapping up our four-film Kubrick Month experience, and hopefully we'll have another great conversation that you can enjoy. Patrick, my friend who is not an actual recruit, but who is a rookie when it comes to seeing Full Metal Jacket, as you'll soon learn. How you been, brother? I have been really good. It's been a, it's been a good week for me. Well, I am glad to hear that. Have you done any watching or reading or playing this week? <laughs> yeah, actually, this weekend I got a chance to catch up on the Amazon original series uh, Electric Dreams, based on uh, Philip K. Dick's I guess short stories, a uh, series of, of whatever. I'm not really sure, but it's based off of, it's an anthology of about 10 episodes in its first season. I think it dropped maybe a month ago. I kept seeing it pop up on my, my radar when I was queuing up Amazon Prime movies for my son and my family. Yeah, and it's recent. It is. And I wanted to give it a shot because I, I enjoy a lot of, a lot of Philip K. Dick's stories, Minority Report, Total Recall, things like that. And I was not disappointed. I'm about three to four episodes in. And in these 10 episodes so far, each episode deals with the idea of what is real and what is not in certain ways. There are, there's an episode that deals with like dreaming and reality and which state is the actual one. Uh, another one deals with the idea of what it means to be safe versus uh, a false sense of that safety. Another one is uh, they all take place in sort of the not too distant future in a similar way to Black Mirror. And the biggest appeal that that I have to it is that it feels very fresh. There's a a when we were talking about District Nine on our mini said recently, you brought that word up as your as your one word takeaway. And I think that these stories do that as well. I think they bring out a sense of real freshness to modern storytelling. They tend to talk about social commentary, which I think, you know, when you're dealing with sci-fi S type things, you're going to do that. It's just kind of part of the the character traits that encompass good sci-fi. But the other thing is that these stories feel very original. They don't feel like they're rehashes of old things. And it makes me want to read some of these short stories that they're based on because, you know, as he's written these, he's, I mean, these are not brand new stories. I mean, he's been working He's been writing stories for years and years and years. And so the movies that I've seen based off of his ideas have been really impressive. Mm -hmm. I, even, I even did a recent rewatch of the original Total Recall, the Schwarzenegger action flick with all of its campiness. And uh, I, within the camp and overblown 
just uh, CGI and violence and all that stuff. There's a really intriguing story here. So that's really what kind of prompted me to check out Electric Dreams. And I'm excited about checking out the uh, the other six or seven episodes that I haven't gotten a chance to see yet. But the first three have been pretty phenomenal. And the great thing is that because it's an anthology, you can you don't have to watch them in order. They're not connected yeah. by, by a similar plot, although that would be kind of cool. But um, I've been able to dialogue a little bit with a couple of people online who have seen most of them, and they recommend specific ones. So I've been catching those uh, as they've been recommended to me. But I'm excited about diving into the rest of them. So Electric Dreams is pretty good. It's it's right up there with Black Mirror and other not-too-distant future tales of social commentary with a nice sci-fi twist. So I've been really, really uh, enjoying them. Yeah, another one of the awesome series that I'm really glad exist and normally would be right up my alley, but I just don't make time for yeah. uh, kind of like Black Mirror. I've seen some episodes of that, but who knows if I'll ever get around to this. I do like the anthology storytelling. That makes it easier. It's almost like a series of one hour movies in that mm-hmm. regard. Exactly. Uh, I, and obviously I like his stories because one of them created Blade Runner, which <laughs> the book though is, is a little different. Actually, I read it this year before we recorded. So, well, and, and I would imagine that a lot of his adaptations take on a uh, probably the creative direction of the director and the cinematographers and whatnot. I know that mm-hmm. I think A Skinner Darkly is probably his closest adaptation to the original source material, but things like Minority Report and Total Recall take some creative liberties because of you know the the creative team behind them. Yep, and cinematic necessities and what you can and can't do what you can tell with pictures versus words so yeah that's awesome man yeah what about you well i went and saw the next maze runner film this week this is the third the final in that trilogy of movies based on the young adult novels written by james dashner i'm a big fan of the books i read them almost every single one of them i think not the first one, but I read books two and three the day that they released. I, I got them at midnight, kind of like Harry Potter back when that was a thing. And I was reading every young adult dystopian series I could get my hands on. And Maze Runner was always one of my favorites. I really enjoyed it. The first movie I absolutely loved. I thought it was a great adaptation. And I I, I want to specify that word and, and enunciate adaptation because that's what these are is it took the book and it had to change some things, namely the fact that most of these novels revolve around two main characters, Thomas and Teresa, who communicate telepathically. Well, they can't do that in a movie and make it work unless you just have a whole bunch of text on the screen or voiceover that's annoying. So they took that aspect completely out of the series. They still managed to make the first movie interesting. The director, Wes Ball, did. It was uh, I mean, I don't know. It was it was a thriller, and it was kind of intense, like psychological type film, and it, and it handled it really well. And then the second movie came, and it turned into a chase, just one long two hour chase movie. And that's when real liberties started being taken. They started introducing different characters and changing things about the story. I was a little nervous going into this third installment. Uh, it's been delayed an extra year because the star, Dylan O'Brien, who plays Thomas, actually got injured on one of the stunts and almost killed himself. So he he came back and was able to finish the movie. God bless him. And that scene is in the movie, by the way. So I, I'll let you look that up on the side. You can find a link to information about that in my written review on feelandfilm.com. But what ended up happening with this one is it's like two and a half hours almost, first of all. No young adult 
trilogy film, single film should be two and a half hours long. That's these books are not that big. Um, I, I guess I appreciate that they didn't split it into two halves like the Hunger Games tried to do, but I, I mean, at what cost having a two and a half hour movie? It starts off with big time action and then it jumps into about an hour and a half of melodrama and then it ends with this chaotic, frenzied action climax again. Um, Wes Ball, this director, he's really good at action, especially the practical effects. And some of them are scary as heck. Like when you see them going, you're just like, oh my gosh, that car just tumbled down the street. Like that could have taken that actor's head off, you know? So they're, they're really great, but it's, it's a mixed bag because a lot of this film is also just cluttered with really overly frenetic CGI, in my opinion, just like trying to show the whole world falling apart. Um, it, did not work for me. They changed like 75% of this book. And so when I say the first one adapted the book, the first movie did to me, when you change almost 75% of the novel story, I don't really think you're adapting it anymore. I think you are writing your own thing. And at that point, I'm going to be honest. I get a little frustrated as a book reader because why are you even making these movies? If you're not going to use the source material, like if you wanted to create your own story based on one random idea from this series, then you should have created your own darn thing, not use the same character names and started mixing things all up. That's just my take on it. I think we really need to have that conversation <laughs> about books to movies and how we feel. Uh, we were going to do that for bonus content. We need to do that because I got really hot about this one. Um, so that being said, if you go into this final film of the trilogy with book knowledge, you may find yourself let down. I mean, you may not. Depends on how you felt about the book, I suppose. I had a friend message me on Facebook, one of our listeners uh, today, and he said, hey, we just saw the Maze Runner film, uh, The Death Cure, and my little brother who's read the books is in full-on rant mode right now. <laughs> and I thought you'd I thought you'd get a kick out of that. And I was like, yeah, I know how he feels. Um None of the relationship stuff works for me in this. I think that the the two main characters who are supposed to have this loving relationship, it just doesn't build, in my opinion, over the course of these films. They take so much time being action-driven, and they spend so much time apart that without that telepathic link actually building some sort of relationship, it, it's not worth it in the end. Um, the actor who plays Newt, I wish I had his name written down, but he's phenomenal. He's great. He's one that I'm going to keep an eye on and going forward because I think he did a great job in the series. Uh, and yeah, overall, that's about it. So, uh, it was very mediocre to end to this trilogy for me. And I'm kind of glad that it's done because there's no more YA trilogies that I've read that are getting, Oh no, there is. I thought there were none, but there is, uh, the knife of letting never letting go. That's still in production. That's more, that's, I, I don't see that having a lot of legs. Yeah. I can't imagine Putod. Oh, goodness gracious. Don't even... Oh, my head's going to explode. All right. Well, that's all I got for uh, Maze Runner Death Cure. I was not a fan. So approach it cautiously for your two and a half hours of time. And uh, yeah, that's about it. So can we talk about Full Metal Jacket? Because I'd rather sure. get to that. All right. Let's do it. Yay. Okay. Before we do, one last quick note is Patrick and I were honored to be guests on a podcast this week. Uh, we got to go on Popcorn Theology with our friends... Richard, David, and James, although Richard was not available because he didn't want to have to face me one-on-one. -on -one. And uh, he's a scaredy cat because he doesn't like La La Land. But I do like La La Land, and so that's the movie we got to talk about. 
and it was a blast. Patrick and I have not talked about it together before this podcast. Um, the Feel and Film episode on La La Land was a mini-sode while Patrick was out of town serving uh, the world in Africa and doing doing some awesome humanitarian work. So he wasn't able to be a part of that. This was the first time he and I got to have a conversation about it with those guys, and it was awesome. It's long, and it's wonderful, and we didn't all love it. So there's some awesome back and forth, too, of, of you know, trying to work through some things and answer questions. And I think everybody should give it a listen. Like I said, it's on Popcorn Theology, and you can find that all over your podcast feeds. Anywhere you find us, you can find them. All righty. With that being said, spoiler warning for Full Metal Jacket. This movie's been out, like I said, since 1987. So if you haven't seen it, you should probably get around to it. I know that not all of you have because someone tweeted me today and said, hey, I'm watching this for the first time to get ready for your podcast. And it wasn't me. And it, well, however, <laughs> it could have been you. It could have been um, you. But, you know, for those of you who have made it into your almost 40s without seeing this film, it's time to fix that. And uh, this is one that is pretty famous as far as Vietnam War films go. And this is now our fourth different genre for Kubrick that we're tackling. We've done – what do we – start? I, I can't remember now. What do we start with? Horror? We start with the Shining? Horror. So we started with horror. Sci-fi. sci-fi and then satire comedy. And now here we are in his war film, which could probably as closely fall under horror as The Shining does. We'll probably talk about that. Um, so, yeah, man, I, this is this is awesome. I just why don't we? You're the newbie here, so I'm curious what your one word takeaway is from this film. Well, it was going to be what? That's a question. That's mark. pretty good. That's pretty good. But, and and initially it was. This is a movie that, having not seen it at all, I didn't know what to expect going in. Knew that there were some famous scenes with um, drill drill sergeants yelling and and giving recruits funny names and that kind of stuff. And so there were things about it that I was aware of, just like a lot of your your classic movies get uh, get sort of thrown together. I remember when we were watching the, um, we were getting ready to do the shining and I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, yeah, we're covering this. And he goes, yeah, I've, I've heard bits and pieces of it. And so I would know it if I heard it, but I've never actually seen the movie. And this was that, that was that way with me and, and full metal jacket. So watching it, it felt very normal for Kubrick. So Kubrick normal, which is probably abnormal for most other directors and but three movies in, I was kind of used to it. I was like, okay, I'm good, I'm good. And then about the halfway point or about the 40 minute mark, it did something different. It said, I'm gonna be a different movie. At least that's how I took it. And so I tried to process these two halves as a whole, because obviously there was some intent to that, and uh it took me really by surprise and threw me out for a minute. I was like, what did I just watch? And so thinking about it, working through it, the word that I I pulled away from it was tragic. You have these two halves, boot camp and war, that have moments in them that feel very tragic. Tragic emotions, tragic characters, tragic events. All these things that really 
I think Kubrick is trying to articulate as war sucks. <laughs> and I don't know if there is any kind of redemption that he is trying to insinuate from any of this. That doesn't, that's not me saying this movie is a crappy movie because it's not by a long shot, obviously, but it has this power to make me feel like, wow, I feel tragically connected to these characters, to these events, something that doesn't happen a lot. I mean, war films have been pretty straightforward most of my life until things like Dunkirk come along and do something different. Full Metal Jacket does the same thing, only in just a weird kind of obnoxious way, but one that you have to kind of digest afterwards and go, all right, um, Kubrick does more than just tell a story. He makes a point. And we've seen that with essentially all four of these movies in some way, shape, or form. And so having having known that, having that, I'm, I'm kind of glad that we did this last because it gave me a little bit of ammo to be able to um, to really process it. Nice but the, but the, <laughs> thanks. But the, uh, but, but the, but the word that I think really sums it up for me is tragic. Awesome. Well, I, that was great. I was a good first impression that gave me some interesting points that you pull out of that. Some good words that you use that I'm going to ask you questions about later, but I think that you are right on the money. This is a tragic film and a tragic story. I do think we should discuss a little bit going forward the anti-war idea of this and whether or not it is anti-war i might i don't know that i completely agree that it is um for me so i had seen this film dozens of times as a kid but i did not remember the second half of the movie existed and i and i think that that's probably very common for people our age when they because this came out when we were you know eight nine ten ish and into our early teen years. And so we were all probably very fascinated by the first half of this movie, right? It's, it's so strong that it overpowers everything and it, and it had overpowered everything in my memory. I hadn't seen this in 10, 15, maybe 20 years. I don't even remember the last time I'd seen it. And this time around the word that just kept, I kept chewing on was raw. It is a frank and realistic depiction of unpleasant facts or situations. That is the definition of raw. And so to me, that is exactly what this movie does. It takes us through this process of war, how one becomes a soldier, the mindset that they have to adopt or get rid of to survive, the mercilessness of a battlefield and the loss of identity in war. We're shown all of this without too much bias, really. And I think that it allows the audience to be reflective and to kind of process their own fears and desires as they go through this. It is extremely tense. It is often funny. It is incredibly shot. But I think that it's more than a war movie for me. It's it's definitely a commentary about humanity. And as we're going to discuss, and I'm going to share, it's very personal uh, for me as well, being a military veteran. Um, and I think I can relate to this film in a way that you never, ever will be able to. Um, but I'm going to try and go through some of that and, and let you into my head. So Kubrick actually said about this movie that he wanted, he was seeking, he was wanting to make an anti Rambo film where 
when you have in Rambo is he comes out of the water glorious in his ability to kill and murder and win the fight. And what Kubrick wanted us to see was the pain and the darkness of real war. And I've known many Marines that would tell you this is an ac- as accurate as a depiction of their time in Vietnam as they ever saw. So I guess he nailed it on that account. Um, I do want to read real quick the – we had a listener comment that I thought was awesome. I had no idea. So uh, Eric Skwarzynski, and you can get me later if I pronounce that wrong. Your name shouldn't have so many consonants in it. Um, but Eric is a, a listener who is very active in our Facebook group, and I he's a horror guy. Okay, So like we all know him as the horror guy. He loves horror films which now in hindsight, it it makes sense to me. But he had commented and he said that he loves this movie. It's his favorite movie ever. And I was like, whoa, I had no idea. I assumed it would be kind of a straight horror film. But he said, the greatest movie, this is the greatest movie ever made. Nothing comes even a little bit close. Structurally, it is Kubrick's best film. The way the narrative slowly crumbles away with its characters also, I can't get enough of Matthew Modine's brief philosophical monologues, Arlie Ermey chewing up the scenery, swallowing it, and spitting it back out, or the gorgeous cinematography, particularly in that final sequence. This viewing, Patrick, I felt blown away by the movie, and I will say that I am at the point of saying I think this is probably my favorite war film ever made. I watched it again right before this recording. So I've watched it two times in the last 48 hours and the 30 minute documentary uh, that's called full metal jacket between evil and glory or between glory and evil. I don't know which, (laughs) which way good and evil and or evil. And I don't know, whatever between something and something. Um, And I can't get enough of it. I, I was just so moved and, blown away by it and I, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we just got through our Kubrick marathon like you said you know it it changes your viewing of his stuff yeah for sure and I think it also changes your perspective specifically because I want to say did you see this before you enlisted or before yeah. you so oh yeah I don't think I've own, seen it since those experiences. Right. So to your own admission, you're going to have that personal connection that's going to probably elevate a film like this, which it should. And I think that speaks highly of what Kubrick has done as a director in this film. Um, and I think it speaks highly of the fact that the accuracy of it, the way it viscerally connects to someone who has been in the shoes of a a boot camp enlistee uh, really elevates that for you specifically yes sir well we're gonna start with part one so we're gonna go through this a little different than we do most movies because kubrick did it different than most people do movies (laughs) so so we're gonna take a cue from him and we're gonna talk first about the boot camp section so this takes place on paris island south carolina where marines go to become marines or where i guess recruits go to become marines hopefully (laughs) um one thing I love about this is I love that the opening sets us up with a song and I, I'm going to not bounce too much back and forth, but I did notice this watching this movie twice, almost back to back. Lots of little nuances that typically I miss in films. Um, so section one and section two both start with a song. 
the section one song is the one that's goodbye, my darling. Hello, Vietnam. That's like one of the main lines of this song. And it's perfect. I think it's got this fun, upbeat tune to it. And it's almost like kind of comical, like, oh, this is sweet. We're going to Vietnam. We're getting our head shaved. Ha ha ha. Right. Which is going to, which is what's going to make the transition so much more stark. But I think it's a great opening because the point of the boot camp section to me is that we don't have individuals. It's going to be all about breaking people down and not being individuals. They're going to be completely remade from the ground up. And in this scene, we see them losing their hair, which is a big deal to people who are going into the military. It's a big, big thing for recruits. And we don't get focused on any one character. So there's no more lingering of the camera on Vincent D'Onofrio or Matthew Modine or Adam Baldwin or anybody who we see in that sequence. It's just a bunch of guys, right? And it tells us right off the bat, these guys are just going to be equal and evenly worthless in a lot of ways. Now, the big thing that happens, we swap, we move in, boom, we're in the barracks, and here he comes right off the bat, Arlie Ermey playing Gunny Sergeant Hartman, okay, the drill instructor. A little bit of background. I don't know if you're aware of this because you haven't seen the movie before. You probably are. This is a common bit of trivia, but Arlie Ermey was actually a Marine veteran who was a drill instructor in real life. So that was his job. Uh, He had retired out of the military and had been working a little bit. He'd gone to, I think he went to college overseas and had gotten some degree in some film related stuff and was working in the industry and Stanley Kubrick brought on Arlie Ermey as a technical advisor for this film. After he got into it and started, you know, kind of helping them go through what boot camp should be like, he told Stanley Kubrick, you need to give this role to me. And he basically strong armed his way into the role. So that's how we got Arlie Ermey and kind of his career defining work. Little side note, the, uh, actor that played that was going to play this role his name was what was his name he's the gunner by the way so he's in the movie still um his name is tim kosheri so you know the gunner in the second half that says get some and has the awful oh, yeah. lines yeah so yeah. he was he was the drill instructor that's but early army was like no no you need to get him out he actually early army actually wrote over half of this script and half of the dialogue for his own role. Um, in the documentary, which I highly recommend you check out, if I could ever get the name right, maybe I will by the end of this podcast, the Between Good and Evil. Let's pretend that's what it is. But it's only 30 minutes long, and it goes really fast. And one of the things they talk about is how he would just spit out this dialogue, like in real time, because, of course, it's, you know, he, he, he did it for real. And their writers were just in shock. They were like, there's no way. I could come up with this. Like there's no way I could ever mimic what he's saying right now. It's just too crazy. And so that's why they just rolled with what he, he went with. So he, he actually came up with over half of his own dialogue himself. I thought that was pretty cool um, and unique to roles. (laughs) That doesn't happen a lot. So, all right. So he's in there. We're in the boot camp. Tell me what you think about this boot camp sequence. Um, and we're going to, we're going to put the ending aside, but like, let's just go from introduction to up until the ending of part one. What, how did you feel about all this, man? 17 minutes. Okay. 
17 minutes, 17 minutes of him barking at the recruits. Oh, in the barracks. Yeah. So I'm, I'm watching this, right. And we get through that great opening sequence, which I think it's fantastic. And you're right. I love how it equalizes every person in this, in this scene or not scene in this sequence. They're all getting their head shaved and whatever. And then the moment that he stops barking orders, the moment that we see probably, I think, um, Modine's character, uh, we see, we see Pyle and, um, and the Joker working together, or we see, um, not the Joker, just Joker. Sorry. That's okay. Well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Batman? <laughs> I just, um, he's, he, he's in, I just he's need, in, I need to not free him to just go and be like, I'm Batman. He's in latrine, um, <laughs> but I, I I looked at the I looked at the timestamp and it was 17 minutes that we got of Hartman barking at the recruits, at barking at these guys, you know, tearing them down, giving them nicknames, all these different things, and I almost wondered, is this what this whole movie is going to be? Is it just going to be boot camp? Is it just going to be him? yelling and the thing is is part of me thought that might be true because it wouldn't put i mean it wouldn't put past me to see kubrick do something like this let's just do this because as you know as we've both found out kubrick's like kubrick likes to linger he likes to stay on something but what i think was great about this whole sequence particularly those first 17 minutes was that it created this immersion into the world of each of these guys like I never felt like I was being yelled at, but I felt like I was next to the guy being yelled at each time as he was going down the row. I, I remember the the shots that Kubrick would would show of him walking up one aisle and then down the other one, and then just basically he'd just do a lap as mm-hmm. he's just yelling and and just continuing to just rant and do all of this stuff. And it's it's phenomenal because it feels like in my head it's one shot like it's a, it doesn't ever cut i know it does because i've seen you know i remember close ups and things like that but it creates an environment it creates a a world that we as an audience can exist in instead of just watch and so in some ways i feel that fear that these guys are feeling the moment that pile is grinning I knew at that moment he's going to get, it's not good. He's going to get beat down. Yeah. He's going to get beaten down. And when you see his, when you see his face go from smiling to nothing after he gets just throttled right in the stomach, it's, I mean, it's like, it's now it's real. It's real. Now he's not, this gunnery sergeant is not messing around. He's not putting up a show. I mean, he is, he is ready to just tear these guys down so as a civilian, as someone who doesn't know that world, there's still a piece of me that's separated from that, that still thinks this is not real. This is theatrical. And I don't want to know for sure that it is real by participating in it because there's this real weird irony that <laughs> I don't, I don't want to know that it's real because that would mean I'd have to participate in it and I don't want to participate in it. So I'm going to just trust that it is real based on the testimony of veterans and other people that have seen this movie, including yourself. So yeah, I mean, those 17 minutes were just long and drawn out, but they were done so purposefully that I thought they were wonderful. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad that you could see the, 
the beauty in it, even though it's crazy. I mean, it has a way of really evoking empathy right off the bat. And it's, it's that awkward empathy where you are concerned for the people that are getting their ears chewed off and their faces slapped. But at the same time, you're just, you're, you're constantly laughing and doing that whole, Oh, like he went there, like kind of thing. Right. As you're watching, it's, it's got this mutual entertainment factor, but you're also really feeling for these guys at the same time. And so it puts you in a really weird kind of conflicted headspace, I think, or at least it does me. One of the things that I remember so well is the pile way of, of doing it, a way of responding in those first moments. Now, I was in the Navy, first of all, so it was not quite as bad, but with the exception of not hitting you, there is an amazing amount of stuff that is similar. Um, I've also gone through something called uh, Chief's Initiation or Chief's Induction, which I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that, but when you um, reach the rank of Chief Petty Officer in the Navy, you become an E7, you have to well, you don't have to, it's voluntary. You voluntarily submit yourself to an entire summer of what I would say is leadership and history training. And historically, it was hazing. It's gotten better. But in that summer that legitimately almost broke me in many ways, I experienced a whole heck of a lot of stuff that was a lot like this. Again, minus any physical interaction. Did you buy a lot of donuts? I remember that. I think that you bought a lot of donuts. We did, but they were for the uh, they were for the genuines, the chiefs. Uh, they were yes. not for us, uh, us yeah, uh, wannabes. I, I remember those stories that you would tell me. Like I had to take donuts to the other chiefs as part of my yeah Oh yeah, and I know that oh. was probably the minimal of what you had to do. So. Oh, it was the minimal. Yes. Um. And so with that, one thing that I remember though is like that smiling, because if your buddy's getting it read the riot act and they're making jokes, right? It's, this is the interesting thing that I, I just can't imagine watching this as a civilian anymore. Cause I don't, I am not able to do that. Like what you experienced seeing it for the first time, this idea of him just going to each person and immediately finding whatever he can to latch onto and just hammer, right? Like he runs up to, uh, Brown, I think is his actual name. I don't remember most of their real names anymore. And he's like, you're not, you know, no, you're not. You're going to be private snowball. And he immediately makes racist jokes about him. This coming on the heels of him just saying on his little speech, how I'm not racist or bigot, or we don't discriminate against wetbacks and gooks. And like, he starts raining off all these racial terms and then immediately becomes racist because that's the thing that stands out to him. And I would have, been i have been pile standing at attention across the way trying to hold my stuff together and not giggle and when you do that the way that he reacts to pile is as genuine as i've ever i mean it it felt like i was having flashbacks because i've had that happen where boom immediately they turn and they're in your face right and it's all about maintaining composure and not breaking that and not letting them get to you. One of the scenes that really stands out the most to define that is the moment where Joker kind of challenges him. It's the Virgin Mary scene 
which is it's oh gosh, I just love I love everything about this whole this whole first half. I can quote it just as well as I can quote Princess Bride, which I mean, obviously I can't use these lines, most of them out in the real world. Um, <laughs> nor would I want to. But you you know what I've seen I'm talking about where he asks him, he's like, you know, well, you believe in the Virgin Mary, don't you? And Joker's like, No, I don't. <laughs> and he he just he turns on a dime and bam, like it's like he's like zips directly to Joker and he's right in front of his face. What do you mean you don't believe in? And the Joker and Joker says no. And he continues to to challenge. And Joker says, the private believes, the recruit believes that if the recruit changes his mind at this point, you will be more, the drill instructor will be more angry than if the recruit gave him the answer that he wanted. And he's like, well, holy jeez. And, he, and then he, he immediately just says, Snowball, get over here. <laughs> and I'm just replaying all this in my head because when you see Snowball, like, in his, like, he's really short, right? So he, like, scatters over there. And he's like, yeah, sir, yes, sir. And he's like, you're fired. <laughs> and he doesn't even tell him why, right? He just, he just, boom, you're fired. You're done. Sir, yes, sir. And he runs, he runs away. But he promotes Joker. And why does he promote Joker? He promotes Joker because he maintained composure. And what this is all about at the end of the day is you're going to go over to to Vietnam and there are bullets whizzing all around you, people trying to kill you. And you have to keep your composure. And if you can't keep your composure while somebody's yelling at you and calling you funny slash terrible stupid things, then how are you going to keep your composure when somebody's just trying to snipe you from a rooftop. Right. You know? Yeah. It's that scene in particular said so much about purpose because up to that point, it was really just from an audience point of view, it was really just laughing at hazing. And in, again, I'm speaking from a civilian point of view, perceived embellishment of what boot camp is like. And, I remember this has very little, this is a very bad analogy, but when I worked at, um, at my previous job, I had a, I had a boss who used sarcasm as a means to what I would consider kind of ingratiate like the new people. So if, if you could throw sarcasm back at her in some way, shape or form, I perceived that you kind of earned her respect. And so I remember there were a couple of moments early on where she was kind of calling me like new, like new guy names or something like that. And just kind of, kind of poking at me. And at one point I just kind of throttled back at her just in an equally kind of sarcastic way. And it was kind of like this verbal sparring match that we were, that we were having. Now that's, tame compared to what happens here obviously but i get what's ha- i i get the purpose behind it in that there's this idea of respect this idea of composure and really it's a matter of understanding what a person is capable of handling and what a person is capable of you know retaliating with can you face adversity when it's right in your face and I love that Joker is able to do that. And he's being very honest. And I, I want to believe that that Hartman is is saying, without saying it, you've earned my respect. I'm going to keep throttling you verbally, but 
because he doesn't tone down anything. Like we never see anything other than that level of, of, of volume vocally and, and attitude wise with Hartman. He never, he never turns that down, but I feel like in that moment, Hartman got uh Joker earned Hartman's respect. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he says he has guts and guts is enough. That's his quote that Hartman uses. And that's, I mean, to me, that's him saying, okay, that's, you know, you've, you've earned my respect because that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for the right answer. I'm looking for guts and you've got it. Um, now backing up a little bit to, to some of this, this nickname stuff. I, I just, I mean, I, this is so funny to me still. I just, I laugh out loud the whole time they're getting their nicknames. I wish some, this is like the one podcast. I wish that we didn't try to avoid the E they ever explicit. Cause I would love to just, Oh, just go through some of these lines, but we're not going to, some of them are so funny though. And um, it's, it's so true the way that it, it plays out. Uh, one of, one of the lines he uses on, on um, Lawrence. Well, uh, Lawrence, his name is not Lawrence. His name's Leonard. First of all, <laughs> he says, he asked him, he says, did your parents have any children that lived? Now, first of all, how is that even an insult? Think about that for a second. Think about that. Did your parents have any children that lived? He's literally <laughs> like, what is he even saying in that moment? Like, is he calling him dead? I don't even know what he's saying. Like, that's the worst. I, I had heard that. I'll admit, I heard this on a podcast. They had brought this up um, and I'm going to plug them at the end, but. And I just, I was kind of like, oh my gosh, you're right. Like, there's no logic to that statement. That's so offensive because it's not even logical for you to not have parents, you know, because you're alive. So you're proof that they <laughs> they had a kid. And, and, you know, and then he says, I bet they regret that. And then he says, you know, uh, only faggots and sailors are called Lawrence because he gives him the name Lawrence instead of Leonard. And uh, I take offense to that, but that's, that's that typical Marine, you know, and, and Navy banter. We get the famous steers and queers uh, comparison in this. And, and so much of this is, let me be clear, not jokes that should be made. These are inappropriate jokes. Um, these are, these are ways that people talked at the time that in this day and age, there's no way this would fly because we are much more um, con- careful about how we do that, how we offensive we are to others, which is a good thing. But the the famous, you know, steers and queers comparison, you know, you know, I, are you a steer queer? I don't, I don't see, you're not from Texas and I don't see no horns or whatever, however it goes. Um, it is hilarious in the context of where it's used in this. Now, when he's, he's going through all this, the, the next, one of the next things that I really noticed about this is there's no sound. Kubrick very sparingly has any noise in the background that is a piece of a score. There's only a couple of times where we get some drum beats and maybe a horn. And that's like during one of the obstacle course scenes. But the rest of it, it's Hartman's feet clicking on the tile in the barracks. It's them actually clomping along, running in formation, singing cadence. Um, and I, I really appreciated that. I felt like it was so immersive to me because of that. Like, like I felt like I was right there running, running with them in formation. Um, and that was absolutely the way that 
boot camp went. Yeah. And the thing about that is it sort of foreshadows the the second half in, in not a more deliberate, but maybe a subtle way of documenting documentary style where we have a boots on the ground in your face right there with them type thing. Because when you, when you add cinematic music, you're, you're, um, what's the word you're, you're adding not fantasy, but you're adding cinematic mood to it. Whereas when we're watching these scenes without any kind of music at all, we're really, we're really promoting this idea that this was real. This really happened as opposed to embellishing it to make it feel like it's real and as a result, making it feel more fake. And I think that's what added to that rawness that you talked about earlier is that we don't have those added pieces. It didn't need that. This particular sequence, all it needed was the reality of what boot camp was like. Because I believe Kubrick thought this is enough to sell the reality. Sometimes reality sells itself. And in this case, I feel like this whole sequence sold itself because of that and because of the lack of the need for those particular cinematic elements. Oh, I, I totally agree with you. And it and it really does work that first 17, 30 minutes to establish that that what the military is doing here is dehumanizing. Let's be honest. They are these are the cogs in the machine that create soldiers to go to war for Vietnam. This is how it worked. It's it may be cold and it may be funny to some extent, but it is it is steeped in that reality of how the actual Marine Corps specifically, but all the branches to some extent work. The flip side of this is that in losing their self, their survival instinct kicks in and you're hopefully creating these these men that are not weak. And D'Onofrio's character is the epitome of all of this, right? He's the one that we get to see go through this transition the most. The others are pretty able to handle everything right off the bat, as far as we can see. Um, and so that's what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to bring you all the way to the edge and then have you crack and then lift you up. It's interesting, too, that drill instructors are called motivators. I don't know if you're aware of that. But he says it, Gunny Hartman says a couple times in the, in the, in the film, he says, you know, I, I'm going to have to give you a little extra motivation. And so they've gotten the name motivators. And a lot of the cadences we use are, they use that word. We say motivator, motivator. Well, they're supposed to be motivating you. <laughs> and this is, uh, this is how it happens a lot of times. So, um, I have gone through some very similar stuff, especially the physical fitness scenes in this one, Patrick. This might be a point where I think people could say, oh, that's probably overblown, where we see Pyle being kind of almost looks like he's having a seizure and he's like running and just barely moving. He's like sideways and uh, what's his face? Joker is trying to carry him along and Gunny Hartman is just, are you going to die on me, Private Pyle? I have literally passed out from running and been taken to the ER and had to get an IV because – you don't want to stop because the culture drives you so hard to succeed that you don't stop. So this is very real and very uh, personable for people who have gone through this. Um, you, you know, it's 
it is exactly the way that you're treated. So it's not surprising to me that Private Pyle ends up the way he ends up. It's sad, but it's not totally surprising. So let's let's just kind of jump into his character. This is Vincent D'Onofrio. And before you, I want to get your thoughts on him and like how you felt like, you know, walking through the film through his perspective. But I want to tell you, in case you didn't know this, Vincent D'Onofrio, this is his first feature film. He actually was a bouncer at a restaurant that Matthew Modine and his wife frequented. And D'Onofrio had some stage background. He was a stage actor. And Modine brought him on and Kubrick loved him right off the bat and asked him to gain some weight. And so he gained like 25 pounds and came back and Kubrick said, no, that's not good enough. Of course, of course this is Kubrick who is notoriously very hard to work with um, or very demanding. Maybe that's the right word. (laughs) Yeah. Is demanding fair. Yeah. We don't know him, but we'll go with demanding. Uh, And so D'Onofrio gained 75 pounds for this role. So there's some some serious uh, method acting going on. Uh, anyway, we got Gnafrio, and thank you. I'm so glad we did because he's an incredible actor. He's had some awesome roles in his career, and this one is right there still at the top. But how did you feel going through this in his shoes? Well, obviously, he was the most empathetic of the characters, and, and rightly so. I mean, there was no other character that was singled out outside of Joker, and... I think that his progression was honest. I think that he articulated from an acting standpoint, what, what you said in this idea of he became dehumanized and his survival instinct kicked in. And to an extent, I think it created this moral dilemma of what had happened to him was incredibly successful and incredibly dangerous. And both of those things existed in a, you know, simultaneously. So there was this dichotomy of this character who at the beginning was kind of this dumpy, overweight, ha ha, this is funny, and turned into someone that if you were sitting next to, you feared for your life. Like more so than Sergeant Hartman in different ways, obviously. And so it was both sad, scary, and I can't say realistic because I've never been in that situation. Maybe you can speak to that, or maybe some of our listeners can speak to that in the Facebook group who might have experienced that. But I I, I was very frustrated because... I didn't know... Of course, I don't know who he was before this moment as a character... I didn't know if he was, was he, you know, he may have been drafted. Very possible in this time. I I feel like he was because of the fact that he, logically, he should have been the one who quit. Why would he have signed up for this anyway? Unless he had some interesting backstory that we don't know about. But assuming that he was recruited, that he was drafted, he had no choice. To be able to have to give all of that up, to have to give up every bit of himself because he had to survive is demeaning and frightening and demoralizing and tragic to me. And it, it, it hurt me as an audience to watch him go through what he did. 
and to end up where he did. And I'm trying to think of other characters that I've experienced that with. I mean, I'm sure there are, but in this moment, from a military standpoint, at least, I've never, I don't think I've ever experienced that kind of regression, um, transformation from a character from one thing to another. And I kind of wanted to get more backstory because I kind of wanted to have more sympathy for him, but I'm glad I only got what I did because I felt, I, I feel like I probably would have had to stop the movie after that first sequence because of what I saw. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't normally see things this viscerally as far as someone losing that humanity and, you know, his transformation over the course of this is very akin to what I, I mean, it's, it's psychotic. It's almost, it's, it's horrific. It's, it's probably more scary to me watching him transition than it is watching Jack transition in the shining to be completely honest with you. Right on. Um, and so I I just want to say that there is, this guy was in every boot camp. Okay. This guy was in every division, every, we call them ships instead of our barracks. This guy that couldn't, he just didn't get it. And we would always be punished for him. At one point around the jelly donut, Hartman says, you guys have failed to motivate him properly. I can't get it done and you guys are failing to motivate him. So now you're going to be punished for that. And this is the guy that should have washed out. This is the guy that should have been sectioned eight. But what what I think we're seeing here is the ugliness of the time period in all its accuracy. This is at the height of the Vietnam War. The stuff that we're going to see here in Section 2 is the Tet Offensive. I'm going to read just a brief amount of history about that. But basically, it's the end of the Vietnam War. Coming, We're coming to that. So we need bodies. And America is trying to throw people at Vietnam. So... I have to believe Hartman's job was get this guy through. Like Hartman is a failure if this guy doesn't get through, right? Both probably personally and professionally. So he's doing everything he can to force him. And he thinks that he's been successful because at one point he tells Pa, he's like, oh, Pa, we found something you're good at, you know, because he's he's shooting well. Yeah. And then in the end, he tells him the same thing when he's like, hey, Pa, you got infantry. Good job. You know, he's like, you made it. He actually didn't say good job, but he says you made it, which is his way of saying good job. Right. So he feels like he has been successful, but in reality, this is a case of somebody who should have been section eight. And you can kind of compare that to something like Hacksaw Ridge, which is very ironic, a little bit of a different time period. But there you have a, a person who wants to go to war but because he won't go to war the way that they want him to go to war, they're quick to get rid of him. They want to get rid of him. You see somebody who doesn't want to be section eight that is, <laughs> and and then now we have piled that probably should have been. Right. Um, and that's a great, that's a great example and a great comparison because I'm not going to, and I'm not going to go completely like a parallel here, here, but I believe the fact that, the forcing of that lifestyle, the forcing of that culture on someone who, if you had people in place to psychologically evaluate him, knowing that he probably couldn't handle it in this day and age, that obviously would not happen. I would think that there would be psych profiles and, and observations of people in the barracks and other, 
uh, military leaders that would be able to say, what we're doing to this guy is something that is not okay. He's experiencing other tendencies of psychosis that we need to stop what we're doing and we need to get him out of here. Obviously, that's today's standards. But you made a great point in saying that we're at a period in our history where we need bodies. We need anyone and everyone because we're drafting them. Again, we're taking the assumption that he's been drafted and we need to get him through, not just to give for Hartman's success, but because of the fact that every man counts and we're not really concerned about the man as much as we're concerned about the gun in the man's hand. And the fact that he can shoot really just sort of ignores every other thing. I think if he hadn't been able to shoot, that would have been the last straw and we say we can't do it. The fact that he could shoot, I think, was the thing that put him over the top. I absolutely agree. Yeah, I agree. That's And that's another layer of tragedy on top of it, right? Because why is he able to shoot? He's able to shoot because Joker, who now became in charge, takes the time to be the thing that Hartman isn't. He's patient. He teaches. Right. Pile. He he helps him. He shows him slowly. Here's how you tie your shoes. Here's how you you know clean your weapon. He takes the time to do those things where Hartman is just expecting it to happen instantaneously. And so there's got to be a, an extra feeling of a burden on him. And, and that Section 8 conversation is actually had by Joker and Cowboy when they're in the head. And this is – this also speaks – this scene speaks – it's right before Powell's uh, suicide. It speaks to the um, way that you feel in boot camp. There's this moment that the two of them are just mopping up the head and they're talking about how pile should probably be section eight that he's in section eight. For those of you that don't know, means sent home for, you know, can't hack it essentially like not fit for duty. Well, they are right there talking about it and the conversation just ends. They agree. And then it just stops. And the next thing he says is I want to slip my tube stake in your sister. And, and there's two things that are so important about it. it's funny, right? But what it's proving and showing you is that these guys are just having a serious conversation, but they have no power and they have no idea what to do with it. And so they just, they don't have time for that. They live in a world that is, is focused for them. And so it's boom on to the next thing. It's, Oh, we got to make a joke. This is too much. This is too serious, too heavy. There's nothing we can do about it. So we're just going to go on to the next thing. And it simultaneously shows you the bond and the kind of joking that it comes with the closeness of living in this situation as brothers or sisters going through this boot camp thing together. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic little quick scene. I want to briefly talk about the donut because the jelly donut is hilarious. When he when Hartman finds the jelly donut, finds his finds Pyle's locker unlocked and loses his ever loving mind. Been there, okay. Been there, done that. So our instructors, a couple things. One, one thing to keep in mind is that Gunny Hartman is getting full eight hours of sleep every night. He is rotating with other drill instructors. We don't see them in this movie. We only see him. But in reality, this is not a one-man show, okay? So you and me, if we're in boot camp, we are sleep-deprived. Majorly, we may be getting two, three, maybe four hours a night, if that. Because we also have to stand watch overnight. 
But Gunny Hartman's come in and fresh at four o'clock in the morning with a good eight hours of sleep, ready to go. So you're, you're frazzled. He's not, he's sharp. And we often would make these mistakes. Well, this one, I remember so, so vividly where he finds a jelly donut, he goes off. I didn't have a jelly donut, but this happened to me. We were PTing in two lines, just like it shows in the film in a barracks. And I couldn't, I think I stopped doing pushups. I think I was tired and I couldn't do any more. I was made to sit in a chair in the middle of the room and they gave me a soda and said, drink the soda. And everybody around me had a PT and, and they made it very clear. They were like, you're doing this for him because he can't hack it. Now I can attest then to Pyle's mental state when he's standing there with that jelly donut in his mouth, trying to eat it. And Patrick, it is one of the most memorable, awful moments of my life. The feeling you have of watching your fellow recruits die on the, like, I mean, they're in pain. They're sweating. Cause usually when this happened, they called it making it rain. They would close all of the windows so that it, all of the heat and the steam fogs up the area. And so you're just drenched in extra sweat and that makes you more heavy. And you're just, you're hearing them grunt and moan and cry. And the whole time the drill instructor is just, no, no, drink your soda, drink it. Like trying to almost force you to drink it. Just like he almost forced him to eat that jelly donut. That is real. And that happens. And that is the, that is psychological abuse. <laughs> okay. Like in my opinion, Absolutely it is. And it's, it's humiliating and it frustrates me that it actually happens. And I want to say in the present tense, because I don't know if it still happens. I'm assuming it still does because it's very much a, a legal tactic, but I almost, I almost wonder at what point does it become too much? And is that really a motivator? Because it's I, <laughs> the next scene we see is the blanket party, which you kind of know is coming. And at that point, you're almost just, you're, you're in, in this place of going, okay, who do I feel sorry for? Do I feel sorry for Pyle? Or do I feel sorry for the rest of his, his platoon or his, 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 his group here? And, and it's frustrating because at some point you can't, with his he he made the choice to have a jelly donut in his in his trunk so that was his but for you if you're taking personal experience at some point your body cannot do something and right. so because your body cannot do something all of a sudden you're now being the the scapegoat and everybody else is getting well now you're the scapegoat everybody else is the scapegoat for your limitation so at one point is it now becoming something that's going to be beneficial to you or to them. And it's, it's frustrating to me because again, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of it from a civilian's point of view, but does it have a long-term benefit? Does it contribute to that whole survival instinct? Does it contribute to that whole breaking someone down to build them back up? Do you, in the long run, do you feel like it helped you become a better person, a better man, a better soldier? I don't know. I mean, maybe you can answer that. Well, I would say that it made me want to go until I could not pot. Yes, it did. And it did motivate me in a sense, but it, mo it motivated me out of fear and it motivated me out of shame. Shame's the right word. Shame because I didn't want them. 
to be embarrassed by me. And, and we never had blanket parties, thankfully, but we had, we had confrontations. I will tell you, there were plenty of confrontations where people came up on you and got in a group and were like, listen, you got to pull your weight. And what this is, what they're trying to teach you in the military through this is you're only as strong as your weakest link. And if you're on the battlefield and this guy can't hack it, you're going to get killed because of him. Right. So you have to be able to come up. And that's what he says. He says, from now on, I will punish all of you. And I think that's where that blanket party happens is because, or why it happens is because now they've been told straight up, you're going to punt, you're going to pay for every one of Powell's mistakes. And they know how frequent that is. So they, they're expecting it. And you're, you're right. It is a, it is a fine line to walk between owning, making someone own the responsibility themselves versus trying to create this group mentality. Because it, I think what I would say is I've seen and what the movie show from what the movie shows us to this example, the majority of the time it's going to go like this. People are going to get angry. They're not going to pick you up. And, and, and the problem is that you're asking 20 other human beings to all come along for the ride. There's going to be that one animal mother who says, screw you, you know, and I know he's not in the boot camp section, but like, I'm going to beat you because that's the only thing I know. So to get everybody on the same page is is crazy. Right. But let's um I want to mention this scene cuz this scene and the ultimate ending which we're going to talk about now the the suicide, right? The homicide/suicide. These are the two scenes that Kubrick starts to use a score. And and this is where this movie is elevated to me beyond just hey, this is a good war film. Because of things like this the majority of the movie is all the same, but in this moment, we get that eerie score. We get crazy, like bluish backlighting, and it's the same thing that happens when they discover Pile in the head with the gun, the rifle. But it, it's a surrealism, and I feel like we are transitioning a little bit between realism and surrealism in those two moments, and it and it heightens everything. And the part about the, the blanket party for me, like, I never, again, I never experienced something quite like that, but I know it was, it was talked about. It was discussed. I will be blatantly honest with you. This is the thing that happens. And this was in 1998 when I went through it, not the Vietnam war. So it, it lingered a while, but it's Joker in that moment that I am finding myself attached to the most because it's it's him the guy that's holding his pile's face down looks at joker and he's like come on and then joker debates it and hits him once and then he pauses and you can you can see in modine's eyes and his face you can feel that emotion going through his head like he doesn't want to be doing this and then he just goes to town and just, it's like he just releases, he, he feels like he, I feel like Joker in that moment feels justified or feels like validated finally in doing this. And he just joins in and just beats him three or four or five times before it finishes. So I don't know how you read that whole scene, but I, I don't know. It's, it's very moving and powerful in a horrific way. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit contrasting because up till that point modine's been modine's joker has been the redeemer for for pile 
And so it goes back to my word tragic because as you see him lay into him once, you knew that that was a given because anybody's going to do that. You know, it's going to be at least once, you know, it had to be everybody. It was a group effort. They agreed. I'm sure. And so, and so knowing what we know up to this point, it had to at least be once, but when he starts laying into him out of frustration, out of angst, I mean, it's just all that frustration that comes to a head in that moment it's it reminded me a lot in a in a distant way of a parent having to punish his child now i'm not going to make that side by side comparison directly but because I, I i don't believe as a parent when i have to spank my child it's rarely done like i'm i want to do it like i'm but there there are moments of frustration and when I get frustrated with my child, I have to be very careful about if I do spank, it's not done in anger. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the difference here is that Joker has been a semi-father figure, um, a, 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 a redeemer for Pyle, and Pyle has let him down one too many times. Yep. And I think, personally, this is my theory, I think Pyle, knowing... When Joker hits him, I think that's literally his breaking point. Me too. I don't think we get the suicide if Joker if, hits if if Joker doesn't hit him, or at least I agree multiple times. I think that's the moment when he is completely broken. Yep. And that's the tragedy of that moment is that Joker had the chance. He had the he had his life literally in his hands in that moment, and he lost it with those with those whacks of the of the soap in the sock and, and it hurts me to watch that because I know knowing what comes later, it makes that moment even more powerful, man. I'm so, I'm so glad you read it that way because it does for me too. And that is exactly how I feel about it is that if he doesn't participate, that Powell makes it, he he doesn't make it well. And he probably dies in Vietnam pretty quick to be honest, but he survived. He doesn't kill himself. He survives boot camp, and maybe you know, what we see is that you can get section eight. I can't, I'm trying to pass tense that word. Section eighted, sectioned eight. I don't know how, whatever. You can get section eight did out from boot camp or from Vietnam a lot easier. Like there's a guy that they talk about later. They call him Handjob. He's dead. And they're talking in a circle about stories. And they say, ah, he was getting out of here in two weeks. You know, he, he masturbates too much. And the whole story was that he masturbated 10 times a day. And so they sent him to a psych. They sent him to a Navy shrink. And that he was ma- – he just he just started masturbating in the waiting room. And so they immediately identified him as send him home, right? So once you're in country, it's pretty easy to get sent out. But it's not easy to get sent out, I guess, before you go. And so I it, it makes you think in your head like – what could have happened to the, you know, we could have saved this guy. And when, when we're talking suicide, that's what, that's what the conversation always comes to. How could we have done things differently to help this person not feel like this was their only option. And so we transition into that scene. And again, it's surrealism to me. It feels like it's out of place and just heightened and craziness. And the iconic face of D'Onofrio in that moment, the acting is just, I mean, it's, is so perfect, but it's terrifying. The the interesting thing about that is that up to that point, Hartman's yelling in his boot camp, um, his boot camp 
dialogue or monologue has been very real. It's been very believable in this moment, in the middle of the night, he's in his, I think he's in his shorts and a t-shirt and his hat. Now, boxers, again, yeah. He's in boxers. boxers. Yeah. And that to me as an audience that adds to that surrealism because it almost looks like kind of humorous. You've got a guy in a, I think a wife beater and boxer shorts and he's in his hat. Like you wouldn't expect, I would not expect that. Maybe that, maybe that's true. Maybe as a, as a sergeant, you're, you're going to put your hat on anytime. But the fact that he is not his, <laughs> he doesn't come down from that volume. You would expect in this moment, in this vulnerable place where, this guy has a gun, a loaded gun in the middle of the night. And you'd expect a leader to say, calm down. Instead, he's still barking orders at him. That adds to that surrealism for me. That says this, this can't be real. This must be a dream. This must be so because it's complete with a, with a Joker voiceover. You know, this mm-hmm. is my last night in here. I was on, I forget what it was, like uh, Firewatch, I think. My last night on the island and I draw Firewatch. Yeah. I mean, it, it sets that real surrealism up and you mm-hmm. almost don't believe what's happening. And so when it happens, you're going, did that really happen? Mm-hmm. And then cut. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, yep. what? What? No, 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 no. Let's go back. <laughs> did, and it's. I think it's intentional because what it does is it puts you in this headspace of psychological breakdown. It puts you in this headspace of this is probably what Pyle is experiencing is a surrealness. The fact that he's doing a, uh, his routine, his, all this stuff in this bathroom, it's just, it's, it's real and surreal to him. It's, I mean, it's like he's on an acid trip, honestly, and he's just completely lost it and we're losing it with him. Yes, man. Oh, yes. I am right there with you. I love what you're saying right now because I agree. It's, I feel like it's coming from his perspective and Pyle's world. There is no other, you said it, there's no other volume or tone for Hartman. So in Pyle's world, whether Hartman actually toned it down in that moment and said, why don't you give me the gun, son? Why don't we talk about this? Pyle sees and hears what we see as Hartman's actions, in my opinion, it's very much supposed to be showing us that sort of feeling that, that kind of perspective from what Pyle has gone through that trauma and the psychosis that it has all led to and, and created in his world. Because also we also see Modine like being pretty darn relaxed and chill about it. Like he doesn't run out of the room. He doesn't like, freak out when Hartman gets killed. He just stands there. Like he doesn't like, I'm sorry, but I think I would react if the man next to me just literally took a shot to the chest and got murdered. He doesn't, he doesn't be like, you just killed Hartman. You just killed him. Why did you, you know, like that's the kind of thing we would say, but he doesn't do that. So I, I feel like you are spot on. And this is also for the record. I can't think of a much more brutally, perfectly realistically shot suicide like that I've seen on screen. It's really hard to watch this one uh, because it is so iconic, but it is, um, Oh man. I mean, he just, he shoots his head off and the blood splatters and then boom, we're moving on. So here we go. Second half, Patrick. 
Now we're in Vietnam. I'm going to read the, the, the background and then I'm going to get your thoughts on this. Okay. So we move from boot camp years later. It's we're in Vietnam, not years, sorry, months later. Um, everybody has hair, by the way, the non boot camp section, the Vietnam section was filmed before the section in, um, Paris Island in boot camp. And I find that pretty interesting because that means that the actors had to play up the Vietnam section without having gone through the, the rigors of filming that. Mm, so like they, you know what I mean? So they had yeah. to act like they had that trauma background without actually having gone through experiencing some of it. Yeah. That's wow. That's some good acting then. Yeah, no, really. That's what I thought too. Um, so again, Ted offensive, the North Vietnamese launched a wave of attacks in the late night hours of 30th January. Uh, this is the eve of the Vietnamese New Year. And this early attack did not lead to widespread defensive measures. When the main North Vietnamese operation began the next morning, the offensive was countrywide and well-coordinated. Eventually, more than 80,000 North Vietnamese and Viet Cong troops struck more than 100 towns and cities, including 36 out of the 44 provincial cap- capitals. Five out of the six autonomous cities, 72 out of the 245 district towns, and the southern capital. This offensive was the largest military operation conducted by either side up to that point in the war. Though initial attacks stunned both the U.S. and South Vietnamese armies, causing them to temporarily lose control of several cities, they quickly regrouped, beat back the attacks, and inflicted heavy casualties on the North Vietnamese forces. The fighting continued for two months. Although the offensive was a military defeat for North Vietnam, it had a profound effect on the U.S. government and shocked the U.S. public, which had been led to believe by its political and military leaders that the North Vietnamese were being defeated and were incapable of launching such an ambitious military operation. American public support for the war soon declined, and the U.S. had to seek negotiations to end the war. That is the setting of this. The Tet Offensive kicks off like a couple of scenes into us being into Vietnam. So blood splatter, complete tonal shift. You told me in the beginning that this really rocked you and you were like, what, how, how did, how did you recover from that? Well, I recovered by adding a one word takeaway to the second half. Cause I felt like I was justified in giving. Nice. That's awesome. And so for the word that comes to mind for the second half is futile. That word really kind of is what I would consider summing up the second half for two reasons. One, my biggest frustration when I watched this was the jarring tonal shift. I wanted a continuation of what happened after Pile. And yes, technically, we're getting what happened after Pile. But we don't... And and you're right. Well, I say you're right. (laughs) The movie tells me this is the end of boot camp because it... I mean, that's what it is. So we don't get anything after that. So the logical leap is let's see what happens in Vietnam. But I wanted the movie to either end there or give me some more payoff. And so in that regard, it felt very futile. I was like, well, that's almost pointless. Why did you show me this? And now you're showing me Vietnam and, and this whole tonal shift that feels more like the actual war part of this war film. You mentioned earlier that the boot camp scene or the war film. And I was like, no, 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 this isn't the war film. This part of the movie is not the war film. This is the pre-war film. So, but going into it and watching the rest of the sequence and getting 
into the world of Joker and his job as a as a reporter and a soldier, this duality, knowing what this offensive was, that this was the latter part of Vietnam, the whole thing felt pointless in retrospect, in the bigger picture. And I know that, you know, we covered the post and we talked a lot about the whole war in Vietnam and everything surrounding the, the, the Pentagon papers and whatnot, but the attitude around Vietnam as a whole to a lot of Americans was, why are we there? And that question is even asked in this second half by some reporters to some of these guys. And to me, that, that was the attitude that I felt going through all this. We have Joker wanting to get back into it because he feels like he's not doing anything productive, doesn't feel like he has any value, wants to get into it. And even there were just so many different points that I think we'll get into that felt like, man, that felt, that death felt pointless. Like it didn't matter. Like it didn't have value. That moment, that loss or this particular attack felt like it didn't have, did it have any positive repercussions? Did it have any lasting value? And so for me, I felt like, Kubrick is, t- is telling us, telling me specifically, or telling the audience what you're experiencing didn't really have a big effect on anybody except the psychological impact that it had on the soldiers that were there or the people that were on the other side of the guns firing back at the Americans. So to me, that was a well-articulated message that he was sending my way at least. So yeah, the word feudal is what I would sum up this whole second half. Fantastic. That's, I I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I think that that was Kubrick's intent. And I believe that he got it across pretty darn well uh, for those that are able to recover. And, you know, it's tough. And I think that now when I'm recommending this film to someone, if they haven't seen it, I almost am going to, I'm almost considering like prepping them to say, listen, there's going to be two distinct sections to this. You may want to even pause the movie for 10 minutes in between and, and just reflect, just pause. Because as a structure, a filmmaking style and, and, and narrative structure, it is so jarring, that word, that it can take you out of your ability to quickly get into it and, and understand what's happening and, and really engage with the film again. Now, once you know it's coming, it's fine. And I don't see a, any problem on rewatching this, you know, to, to get back with it. But I did, I felt that myself even a little bit uh, because I had forgotten it was coming. And so I'm with you. Now, the transition is hilarious. So we get, we, we get a song again, right? And this one is These Boots Are Made for Walking. That's the song we immediately load into the scene with. And we're in, I have no idea where we're in, Saigon or somewhere. And what we see is Joker and Rafterman, I believe, is with him. And there's our famous prostitute trying to solicit our two Marines. You know, and the, the iconic line, me so horny, love you long time. This is a real thing, obviously. Uh, this this happened. I know that the, the theft happened as well. My dad, who was a Marine in Vietnam, has told me that that was, that was commonplace. People would run up and grab your stuff and just run away and, and try and, and, and they would mock you 
And I think that that's what Kubrick is showing us when the, the guy like does some like kung fu moves at him. And I, I love that. I just laugh my butt off, especially at Joker's response. Because Joker responds by almost almost comically like saying like, oh, well, like it, there's nothing I can do about it. And he like, you know, gives him some kung fu moves back. It's fantastic. I just love that. Can but I just that, say, is it, is yeah. a, I'm sorry, before you get into it, Matt, no, go. character, I was, I was talking to my coworker about this, who's uh he's a filmmaker and we were, we were talking about this movie and he said, he was giving me some backstory about Modine. Uh, I guess it's kind of par for the course that one actor has to have a problem with Stanley Kubrick and Stanley Kubrick has to have a problem with an actor. And this was, this was the movie fair for, for Matthew Modine. Apparently he didn't want to memorize his lines. And so Kubrick actually had little cue cards or not cue cards, but he was feeding lines to him through an earpiece at some point to, to get him to say, say his lines. Cause he just refused to memorize them. And at one point Modine uh, suggested to Kubrick that he changed the title of his movie to. <laughs> I can, I can see that not going well. <laughs> well, yeah. The fact that you're telling the director, he needs to change the title of his movie. He said, and, and this speaks to his character, Joker. He says, I think you should change the title of the movie to Youth in Asia. <laughs> Y-O-U-T-H. What? Oh, my in gosh. Asia. <laughs> and apparently Kubrick was like ready to slap him down <laughs> because I was like, wow, that's awful. So the, the fact that you can speak to a director like that, I mean, I think it speaks volumes about Modine as an actor and maybe being too into his character of Joker. But anyway, so just as a side that's note, awesome. yeah, I, th- I think he kind of channeled his inner actor for for this role dude i you know I'm, i'll be honest to just chase that rabbit just real briefly i want to do more kubricking after this is over ah uh, you know what i'm gonna save this i'm gonna save this for uh for final thoughts but there is another moment where in that documentary they talked about that same kind of thing happened with adam baldwin and his character in, of animal mother that they would talk about like how sometimes they would be forced to do 70 takes of some of these scenes I just can't even, I can't even like imagine like trying to be an actor on this set. Right. And he was doing some dialogue and he, he thought he nailed it. Right. And Kubrick just says, you know, again, like, and he's like, he finally, he challenged him and he looks over and he says, okay, what was wrong with that one? And the, the guy says, Kubrick, just like you see Kubrick slide out from behind his camera with one eye, stare at Adam Baldwin and go try better acting and then slide back behind his camera. And I just, I just can like totally vision. I can see that right. Like in, in my mind, and I just, Oh, to be a fly on the wall of his filmmaking, man, after seeing all this stuff and hearing some of these stories, it would be a blast. I think, I mean, it would be what I, what I, I want to see in, in the spirit of the disaster artist is a biopic of a Stanley Kubrick. Ooh, who would play Stanley Kubrick? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm still in the infancy stages, obviously based on our discussion here, but I would just love to see somebody take on the, the role of doing a biopic on the life of Stanley Kubrick and just completely embellishing some of these stories because they would make at the very least some great cinematic uh, moments for me to watch as a, as an audience. We we're going to pitch this because this is, (laughs) you're the director. You're a director. Now you can get this done. You got pool. Okay, I'll contact my my Anthony. Team. He'll score it for us. We're we're halfway. The scooter can write it or produce it. We're we're there. He'll edit it. Yeah, and then we'll we'll do really long takes. I'll and, market it. How okay. about that? Yeah, Sounds I need great. a job. 
<laughs> Stamp it for approval. Oh man. Okay. So right. pulling us back to the movie. Pulling us back to Vietnam. So right away, this ties into what you were talking about with the post transition and, and how the fake news and the American not getting the real thing. We get that that um I almost said war room. It's not a war room. Doctor Strange left flashbacks. It's a planning room for the journalists. Oh, that's a hilarious line by Gunny Hartman, too, by the way. The look on his face when he's reading oh, off yeah. infantry, infantry, infantry. He's like, journalism? <laughs> you want to be a writer? Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? <laughs> and, then, and then Joker sounds off his credentials. I wrote my high school paper. I know. And he's so serious. Like, he's completely dead serious in that moment. He's not joking either. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Okay. Anyway. So we're in this room and we're going around the table. And I love this brief moment where there's the the officer who's kind of handing out assignments. And they're having this discussion. And to me, this is where we start seeing some of that fake news to sensationalize it. He specifically tells them that they no longer want to use the terminology search and destroy, that it has been changed to sweep and clear, which is vastly different. Okay, when you're hearing those words, search and destroy, no, that's that's bad. Sweep and clear, oh, it's no big deal, right? And then he also says that Joker's story is too boring. He says, does anybody die? I think is the, is the question. He asks him and he says, no. And he's like, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> he says, we run two basic kind of, he tells him he's like, the, we run two basic kind of stories. One is like a puff piece of, you know, good positive hope happy happy moments for gis winning the hearts and minds of of people in america the other is combat action that results in a kill that show us winning the war rewrite it and give it a happy ending one kill grunts love reading about dead officers and like that to me was what you're talking about in a nutshell right it was showing us kubrick giving us that nod to hey this is when that started happening and we weren't getting the full picture back here in the States. Yeah, it it's one of those things that I think he adds to this back half that amplifies the reality of what Vietnam was really about. I mean, it's stuff that we already knew. I mean, this is the 80s. We're in the middle of the middle of the Cold War or the near the end of the Cold War. 87, yeah, probably toward the yeah. end. So we've so we've gotten a little bit of cynicism from Vietnam. We're very much aware of all that. But for him to add that to it, I think it adds to the to the feudalism of the rest of the movie because he could start with us being in the fight, but he chooses to put us on a street corner with a hooker soliciting these two guys, one of which we already know, and then moving us into the newsroom, reporter room, uh, peace room, as opposed to the war room since it's news or whatever, and giving us this the painting this picture of this is really what happens this is part of life and i think he's also what he's doing is he's giving us this sense of desire from these other guys to get back into the the fight because mm -hmm. that's a common thing among this back half is joker wants to get back into it or it, according to the rest of the people that he's living with, he wants to get into it because apparently he's never been in it. He says he has. Yes. But, but and I'm assuming that he has not. He's just talking a big game. But um, we're getting uh, we're getting two pieces of information there. One, fake news. Two, 
these guys don't want to just be reporters. They want to be soldiers. They want to fight. That's why they're here. Yeah. Well, until they do, they do until they do, right? They do it first, most of them. And then they don't because what's awesome also in that scene is the officer when Joker challenges him and Joker says, you know, sir, I'd like to recommend, (laughs) which I, I, the balls to even (laughs) say this to someone, um, I'd like to recommend that, you know, maybe you should come out in the bush and see for yourself what it's like. And the officer's like, excuse me, I've been there. Uh, I've done that and I'm not going back. No, thank you. I'm good. (laughs) You know, like it sucks out there. And he, so they acknowledge it. He acknowledges it freely, but yeah, it's, it's kind of like this fantastical world to Joker and to the people that haven't been there. Uh, And so there's the choice, right? The choice is to follow a journalist through this story. We're following Joker, the journalist, the writer, and Rafterman, the photographer. And I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it because it gives me a sense of a civilian perspective almost. Yes, they're soldiers, but at the same time, they're not warriors. And so they can, in a, in a way, they can play the everyman for both of us, I feel like. I have really come to just appreciate this style of war filmmaking. We saw a lot of this in District 9, and we talked about it in that mini-sode just last week, that on-the-ground wartime photojournalism feel. This was also in 12 Strong, which is out in theaters now. That film's director was a wartime photojournalist, and you can really feel and sense that from some of the cinematography in that movie. It's unique. It's not something you're used to seeing on a Hollywood big screen. It's not, it's not sensationalized in the same way. It, it feels more tangible, I guess. And, and so I think that it's, it's both, it's very good at both showing the tragic side and the, the awfulness, the nastiness of war, but it also is very good at showing those moments of camaraderie that are, only something that you're going to understand if you've been in the crap together with these guys. Okay. So the, the, the fact that these guys can use racial words for each other and it's not a big deal, right? They, they can talk to each other in the way that Joker and Cowboy talk to each other in the head where he says, I want to sleep with your sister. And he's like, what do you trade me for it? That only comes with a level of understanding your life is kind of in this person's hands in some way. Like you're in this experience together and you bond through that. And I, I just really love the choice of using journalism to take us through that story. Did you? Yeah, I did. And I think what was interesting to me was the fact that there's not a sense of prejudice because of a person's job. Because Joker and raftermen are still gun-carrying soldiers. And when they need to get into the thick of it, they're carrying a gun first and a camera or a notepad second. This was, they have a job, but they also have a job. And every person that goes over there that is given a gun, that's their job. And I think in a lot of ways, what we see is that Joker sort of grows up when he gets into it and he realizes, wait, I'm a soldier first and a reporter second. And I want to be able to do both. But we see a guy who wants to, he doesn't, he wants to report, but he wants to 
act first. And so what I, what I dig about this is the fact that we have that duality. I rarely, like you, you mentioned, we don't see the reporting side, just like we don't going back to Hacksaw Ridge. I, I don't think about medics, you know, in the field. And that's what they, their primary job is to, is to aid and to provide, you know, first aid and, and medical attention to fallen soldiers in the field. But they're, with the exception of <laughs> our protagonist from Hacksaw Ridge, they have guns too. And so they're also made to, uh, to be soldiers first or second, yeah. depending on the situation. So we get that same thing with the journalism in that it's just as important to report and to document because we need to see as civilians, we need to see back home what war is really like because it mm-hmm. does tell stories and stories inspire us, stories educate us. And for us to be able to see that and to see it from another perspective, to see documentarians documenting that gives us a different perspective and it allows us to understand that even these guys that are gathering this information are still in the thick of it, sacrificing and risking their lives as well. And so I think there's a really interesting duality there for me. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And and it and allows them to capture too just a wide variety of personality um, from, from very different backgrounds. Uh, and you get Adam Baldwin, who plays Animal Mother, who I don't know if you're, if you, did you notice who he is as an actor? Do you know where um, he's from? Where you, where you know him from? My Bodyguard? I mean, that's a ni- 1980s movie that I remember him from. But he's, he's Jane in Firefly. Yes. Yeah. I, I recognized, I, after the fact, I recognized that he was Jane, but Firefly yeah. came late to the party on that one. So I know. I recognized him first in an old 80s movie that I grew up with called My Bodyguard. But you would. Yes. You totally would. Um, but, it, like he's a he is a good example of that gung ho. I just want to kill kill um, aspect. I think I don't remember. I think it's I think it's him who says like I'm good for Vietnam. I I don't want to leave. It may maybe it was somebody else, but there's another guy who who may say that. And then you have the gunner, right? The the helicopter gunner who's just just relishing in murder of anybody. And he asks them, you know, how do you know the difference between the women and the kids, you know, how do you, how do you stop from shooting them and, or something? He says, you know, you gotta, you just gotta lead them a little more if they're running. Yeah. yeah he says he, he makes this, he makes this, oh, this proclamation. Anyone who runs is a VC. And Anybody like, who doesn't run is a well-disciplined VC. And then they ask, well, how can you shoot women and children? And he just like, he laughs. Just don't, I just don't lead him as much. You know, don't lead him as much. Oh, I mean, it's their target practice, their game. They're, they're just the, they're the end result of, of being accurate with the gun. And that's so wrong. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, after seeing what I've seen so far in this movie, I reluctantly believe that there are people out there that were like that. Absolutely. I think there, there are. And I think that Joker gives us a good sense of, you know, bring it back down to earth. He sees the dead bodies all in a row and he has that quote. He says, the only thing, the dead know only one thing. It is better to be alive. Which is, wow, right? That's kind of like one of those mic drop type sentences. Um, and then he gets into this, this question. He gets questioned by the general about his pin. He's wearing this pin, this peace pin. 
And yet on his helmet is written born to kill. And you talked a minute ago about duality. And so I wondered what you thought of Joker's outlook on war and what you make of the fact that he's got these two seemingly conflicting symbols that he is putting forth. Um, I remember a quote. I don't know if it was a famous quote or because I got it from the Simpsons, but (laughs) there was a, a sense of irony in it because it said, if you want peace, you must prepare for war. And that quote came to mind when I saw that scene. And what it brought to mind was that you have this guy who I think as he goes through boot camp, he he doesn't change. I mean, he's one of these guys that I think is the most stable. He's the most consistent of any of the guys that we are allowed to to get to know. And so I think that his stability stems from the fact that he's not given a choice to join. So again, I think this reinforces the fact that he was drafted. And so I think I'd like to believe that he sees value in what's going on here because he was chosen and because he's being allowed to report. But at the same time, I think he's also playing a role. So I think that Joker and there's some there's a bit of play in his name he's that he's sort of playing a joke he's sort of playing a part in having this thing that says born to kill because he's never killed somebody he's never seen combat up to this point and so i think what he does i think honestly for me i think what's on his lapel is what he feels but what's on his head is what he wants to be like he wants to be a guy who's born to kill. And I think there's a bit of irony and a bit of proclamation or a bit of uh, just presumption there on his part by putting that on his helmet because he's not. He wasn't right. born to kill. He was born to report. That's a great, great observation because he says later, he has this really, really powerful quote. He's being interviewed at, in a string of those interviews about why, why are you here? Why'd you come or whatever? And he says, I wanted to see exotic Vietnam, the jewel of the Southeast Asia. I wanted to meet interesting and stimulating people of an ancient culture and kill them. I wanted to be the first person on my block to get a confirmed kill. That was what he said. And he pauses ever so briefly at the end of meet interesting and stimulating people of an ancient culture. And it almost gives you the idea that he kind of realizes oh yeah, now I got to put my hard persona hat on. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to want to kill, right? Right. Because I really believe that first part of that from his character, that he wanted to come see Vietnam. It's exotic and meet unique people. Those make sense for someone who wants to be a reporter, right? Mm-hmm. And then he kind of just casually at the end tacks it on with this weird grin on his face. And I feel like you're absolutely right. I think he's fighting against that macho nature of we should be wanting to kill he sees people like animal mother whose helmet by contrast says i am become death and you 100 percent understand that that is what animal mother's goal in life is is to become death right like he embraces that and so i I do think that that's what they're using joker to show us that's foreshadowed in the barracks when he starts talking about wanting to get back in the fight because as we mentioned before we we know he has never been in the fight 
And so he's talking a big game and he's being called out. And it's interesting because the, the few moments later when they're actually being like initially attacked, he says something along the lines as they're watching the, the attack happen. He says something like, I'm not ready for this or man, God help us. Or he says something of reluctance. Like he's going, Oh my gosh, it's really happening. Um, Man, I hope I wish I could think of the line, but it was something along the lines of him basically being reluctant to do like now that he's actually in it, you realize that, oh, he doesn't really want that. And then later on, that line that you mentioned is perfect because it really just articulates that sense of duality and that persona that he's trying to portray uh, for these cameras. Yeah, when it's not really him. Yeah, and one of my one of my almost connecting points happens around this time as well in the film and and I I it's when they're I mentioned it earlier those two dead marines and they're standing around in a circle and Kubrick's filmmaking bro is just he's amazing. I have such a respect for this guy's artistic talent and styles. The camera is is swerve, swerving around doing close-ups uh from the ground almost from the perspective of the dead guys. And all we hear is them giving almost like their last words and we hear things, they say different things. And I think it's, it's, it's capturing those different, those different ideas about what death is like. We hear simplify. We hear we're going home now. We hear we're mean Marines, sir. We hear go easy bros. And then we get to Adam Baldwin, animal mother. And he says, better you than me. And then somebody challenges him and says, at least they died for a good cause. And he responds and says, you think we waste gooks for freedom? This is slaughter. And so even in the midst of understanding what they're, what these guys died for, like they're trying to almost, most of them are trying to kind of put it out of their minds, but there's guys like animal mother who know full well what's going on here. And yet is so consumed by it that like you have to be in order to survive there that you just keep going, you know, it's wrong, but you just embrace it and and go with it. Yeah. It's that scene is definitely a, a scene of reconciliation for all these guys because of the way in which they, the the way in which they communicate how they're putting that to bed. I mean, that's their closure. They're making amends for death of a comrade, of a of a of a fellow soldier, and they are basically saying this is how I'm going to deal with it. And it's very honest. It says a lot about each one of them, and it helps set up those next few scenes where we get to see more of what they do individually. Yes, and and that it does set that up and we we get to that point where the the leadership role has changed and they're going up up in these buildings and it's night and it's fire and we start getting a sense of some of that cinematography that's really amazing at the end of this film and it the second half it just has that completely different tone and now we're seeing people die and we're seeing that it's real and the sniper scene is particularly poignant once once the marines start dying it's it's awful to watch because they begin to ignore their training and revert to their society conditioned mentalities. 
They rush out to save their fallen comrades. No one gets left behind. And every time they do, they get shot. And most of them die that do that. And it's it's awful because they're trying to save their their brothers, their fellow Marines, and yet it's not the right choice. And there's this big argument about it before Animal Mother storms out in a blaze of glory. And I felt very strongly that this was realistic. And this is how exactly that probably would have gone down. Because there's there so many people that that humanistic nature of of helping others kicks in, that compassion. Like you're going to rush. You just want to go get them. Regardless that you see each other getting you know, nailed from afar. Um, and then there's going to be somebody that's trying to, to be smart about it and say, no, we can't, we just need to let them because there's two guys out there laying there, you know, like they're not dead yet. Oh, that's, I mean, I just, I, I, I'm transported in that scene to that headspace, trying to decide what would Aaron do. And I don't know. I don't know. Well, this is probably the blessing and the curse of what happens in boot camp because one of the things you mentioned earlier was the fact that boot camp allows unification allows te- not just teamwork but camaraderie and the need for one to be helped up by the others this idea of community and saying that you're only as strong as your weakest link but what happens when your weakest link is out there getting slaughtered by a sniper you have to let him go for the sake of the group and so I think in a lot of ways, this is my theory, boot camp in some ways has caused this reaction because of this love that these guys have for one another. It's genuine, absolutely genuine. They fight for one another, but they're out there fighting for a cause, not for each other. They're, they are fighting with each other and they have every right to want to rescue one another. But if we're talking about logic, if we're talking about surviving, if we're talking about these men that have been broken down only be, only to be built back up, they have a job, and that's their job. And I'm saying this very much with a a, a pessimistic tone. I don't believe this because I, I believe in this value of life. This is what they were trained to do. They were trained to shoot. They were trained to attack. They were trained to go on these missions. They were not trained to rescue each other. That is a secondary feature. That is a secondary thing. And it is a stupid thing to go after a guy who is being target practice and being used to call out. I mean, Cowboy himself called out what was going on. He's saying, these guys are shooting him to to draw us in. We need to stay back. And these guys are reacting. It was all about slowing them down. The whole thing was, the tactic was about slowing them down. It was not about killing them all. No, it was about making them afraid to move. Yes. Yeah. And eventually they were uh, his 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 insinuation was that these guys were going to come out and attack them and they were going to have to fall back. Mm-hmm. And so he being the only one that I guess you consider rational was trying to be the leader and these guys undermined his leadership by going after these, you know, uh animal mother and I can't remember the other guy who ended up getting getting wasted. But it was reinforced so cinematographically, so great cinematography. It was it was reinforced really great cinematically. Cinematically, thank you. In, <laughs> in these okay. almost in these almost slow shots with the blood just kind of popping out. I mean, those were you want to talk about visceral moments. Those were visceral moments right there because at this point it wasn't 
it wasn't just shooting a guy. It was a slaughter. These guys were being slaughtered. And that's what we were made to feel as an audience. And that's what I think these guys were feeling. And that's why they attacked or why they wanted to go after their fallen comrades. So morally speaking, yes, go after them. Logistically, don't be stupid. Just <laughs> do your job. And this is, this is where that conflict comes in. And I think that's really where it's, it, it's great filmmaking and great direction because mm-hmm. we, he wanted us to feel that conflict. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely succeeds at it. And then, and then we get another conflict, right? Because we get into the building and they find who's sniping them. And it's a little girl. It's a young, it's a young Vietnamese girl, the Vietnamese girl, which is incredibly realistic according to my dad uh, and the Marines that I've talked about, you know, that you don't know who the enemy is. Come on. They all look the same, right? The, the Viet, the Viet Cong and the, the Vietnamese, the, the, the North or the South Vietnamese, they're dressed the same way. You, you have no idea who's there to hurt you and who's, who's there to be your friend. And here they are with this young girl who's the only one by herself. Her job was just to sit there and slow them down. And now they have that, that incredibly, again, we turn to more surrealism where the tone changes, the background music kind of comes up and we have this scene not to totally screw anything up, but there was a, there was, it was actually filmed a version of this where at the end animal mother cuts off and holds up her head. And that ended up getting cut because it was too, like they thought there's a, instead it was just replaced with that single line. We don't even see the person who says it off camera, but there's somebody who's rejoicing in it. Talks about like, I think her final words being or something. I, I forgot what the quote was, but somebody makes, makes light of the fact that, that he just got his first kill. And so, the, and I think that's fantastic choice. Like I would not have been okay with that ending. But we have our hero, our pacifist as, as it was, our, our guy with the peace symbol who doesn't have those, doesn't have the stare, who now has to come upon this. And they, they are kind of group coaxing him to do this. You know, it's like this peer pressure thing to kill her. Uh, and I, I just, it, it's, it's awful, uh, but I can totally understand how this scene plays out and all the way up to its conclusion with, with what is done. Yeah. It, it is a, one of the more visceral scenes when it comes to war that I've, I've experienced because it speaks a lot to in that moment when there's this lingering, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? There's a lot happening here. We we hear her praying and then eventually saying, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me. And the camera just cuts to him. It cuts to animal mother. It can't, cuts back to him and then to her. And there's this tension that is very Kubrick-esque of just holding, hold, hold, hold. And eventually, bam, we have the, the final shot. And it's a... It's a redemptive payoff because it's it's a it's it's a mercy kill. And I think to me, that's the honesty of that's the only kind of kill Joker can have is a mercy kill. Because I firmly believe that that peace symbol is who he is, not what's written on his helmet. 
because he's not born to kill. He's born to mercy kill at this point. And so in that moment, I think that's the most honest way that he could have killed anybody in line with his character. Totally, totally on board with that. I agree. I don't, I think that, I think that that's why he does it. I think that he had to in order for his character and for the ending point, the very, very end here that I'm going to talk about in a moment, but it's, I love the fact that Kubrick ends both sections with deaths. So there's again, a a kind of a, a comparison going on of one section boot camp ends with a murder and a suicide and Vietnam ends with mercy killing a teenage girl. Like there is no glory in this picture. There's no, it was awesome because someone died. We won. It's all portrayed. And that's where people get this anti-war, you know, agenda from the movie. I think is like, it's all portrayed as bad or potentially avoidable in some ways, or at at the very least emotionally scarring to the people involved. Uh, last thing, I guess, before we move on, I, cinematography in general, it sticks out to me in this movie big time. I loved it. Did not know this until I looked it up. But this, this Vietnam was England. Can you believe, I mean, how crazy is that? I do remember that my dad was telling me about it when we were talking about this movie, uh, covering it this week. He said, did you, did you know that the movie took place or the this Vietnam, the Vietnam setting was actually England. And I was like, no, I didn't expect that at all. Yeah. I didn't even see that at all. Yeah. It's pretty wild. And then the, the former Royal air force base and armed British army base served as their version of Paris Island. So oh. the whole thing was shot over in England and on the Island. Oh, the old England. That's great. It's pretty amazing. I, I mean, it's gorgeous. It's just gorgeous. And I love the close-up shots that he uses throughout the the second half with the the interviews that take place and the way that the camera moves almost like it is Rafterman's camera at times. It's he's just brilliant. And of course the final shots um of the hazy fire and darkness and buildings crumbling and smoking and explosions and stuff is just it's very memorable. Yeah, there's a there's a couple there's a couple of um scenes that stand out to me that one in particular, but there's this great, uh, it's that famous Kubrick tracking shot of the, I guess it's the British television crew when they're filming these guys that are just, they're leaning against the wall. And I guess they're kind of hiding. From, We're going from right to left. I think down the line, yes, right to left. Yeah. And, and, and they're all making comments about, Oh, this is Vietnam the movie. Well, I get to be this and I get to be John Wayne. Well, I get to be his horse. And who's going to be the, uh, who's going to be the Indians. Well, the gooks can be the Indians and just, it it really visually it's very cool because I love that kind of tracking shot, but it tells you so much about these individual guys, the the joking style, the fact that I mean, it shows their camaraderie, but it also shows a lot of just kind of how they're feeling in the midst of this. Like you can't help but kind of laugh and kind of make fun of your situation because of just the absurdity of where you are. And I think it speaks volumes about really how long they've been in country, how long they've been in the thick of this and and really what their reality is. And um, because I feel like, I feel like if I were 
in this situation, I'd be joking alongside them like, oh yeah, I could play this guy or who could do this and who could do that. But it was somewhat, it was one of those small moments of levity that I thought when you combined it with the cinematography made for a really well-placed scene. Absolutely. And, and you're right. You're absolutely right. It's, we are so far removed. And I, I mean, I, granted, I've never been on the ground fighting a war with a machine gun, but I've been deployed for months on end. I've been on a ship for months on end. I've been on the ground in the Middle East. And, you know, you have to, you have to create your own world out there. You are separated. You are distanced. You have to, tell yourself that back home doesn't exist. This is your, this is your world. And so trying to that there's that humor is constant and never ending because it's the only way you can get through the days or you just drive yourself insane and go crazy. Um, but yeah, Kubrick's, he's just a master man. Uh, watching him through all this has been pretty, pretty amazing. Last up for us is our connecting point. That's that one scene that, connected the most with so um, you want to lead us off yeah and we've we've talked through a little bit of this but i wanted to add some detail it's it's piles homicide and suicide so this is the moment for me that i thought was probably the most jarring and humiliating and frustrating and sad all these different emotions that came with with watching this and I say this because this was before I saw the second half. So I wanted the movie to end here. I really did. I wanted to say, okay, well, that was that was a complete story for me. Granted, it was 40 minutes, and that was the shortest movie ever, And which is why the frustrating part of the second half, uh, or the, the second half frustrated me, at least in the beginning. What connected me the most was seeing his character go from not taking what was going on seriously, that grin, what you talked about earlier, to being humiliated, eventually turning into something frightening by the end of this first segment. And there was so much tragedy to that. I hated knowing what was going to happen because it was inevitable, especially after the the beatdown. Knowing that it could have been prevented just hurt my heart watching it. You know, the valuing of human life for something that eventually took more of it put me in a place of real empathy for him. Sure, I mean, he was not cut out for this. I mean, maybe he was, but you mentioned earlier that he probably would have died early on in Vietnam. But to see him forced to become something that he didn't have to be, that led to his demise, it was just awful. I mean, I really hated it. I... I I don't know that I've ever hated a moment more in film, but I hated it for him because we could see that it was prevented, preventable, but he was, I, I could see his loss. I could see the fact that he was so lost in this world of not having any kind of hope of coming back out that to watch it with Joker, to watch this whole thing unravel in in this room, it put me in a place of going, ah, I want to help you, but I can't. And so just to watch it end so abruptly was just like, ah, and so it, it broke me, man. It was just so hard to watch. And yeah. so that, that to me connected, connected them. I, I connected the most with that moment. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, it's it's absolutely a no-brainer in a lot of ways for all of us. I, I, I would be shocked if anyone did not really have to dig deep to get through that scene and to to recover from it because it is awful. And part of what makes Kubrick so good at what he does is evoking that and giving us, putting us in the place to feel that way um, and, and letting us know what that might be like. So uh, mine actually sort of ties into that a little bit at the end. So uh, mine is the final scene. And that is with, it's just this gorgeous cinematography. The Marines are walking through the darkness and they're singing Mickey Mouse as buildings burn around them. This kid's song. And, it, and for me, because Joker has been our main character as far as the most of the movie. It, this is where we see that he has fulfilled this important role of, of an arc character arc. He seems to be the most human character we have, as you pointed out, the most humane. Um, and he, despite everything, he stays somewhat true to himself. And he slowly starts to take on the guise of a fully rounded human being. He is clearly searching and he has these conflicted symbols that he carries with him. But Kubrick allows him to get that first kill. And I think by doing that, he captures that duality within him perfectly because he struggles with that, the peace side of him and the born to kill the job side of him. But he walks away telling us something about himself. He says with the voiceover, my thoughts drift back to erect nibble wet dreams about Mary Jane Rotten Crotch and the great homecoming fantasy. I'm so happy that I am alive in one piece and short. I'm in a world of shit. Yes, but I am alive and I am not afraid. And it's that I am alive statement like that. He feel he's not alive because he's actually alive. He's, he feels alive because he has come full circle and survived it. He has, I think what he's telling us is he has not lost his humanity. That he has gone through this process. And the biggest irony to me of this is that it's bookended with that scene that you're talking about that was your connecting point. Because in your connecting point and in, in Private Paul's suicide slash homicide, he says the same words. He says, I am in a world of shit. And Joker says the same thing. And I don't think that's by accident. I think it's intentional that he's calling back to the words that he heard Powell use. And he's come out. He's not come out. He's can't, he's come out of it alive and changed. And that's what makes it tragic is that we can see the hope for him having gone through that gauntlet. But yet we know that Pyle didn't just like you're talking about and never quite got the opportunity to have that happen. And so because Joker's so intimately tied to Pyle, it's just, gosh, it's just so emotionally, ugh, all of it. Because you don't, we don't feel like, like Joker's, it's not Joker's fault, right? That's the important part here, is we don't have a character to blame, in a sense, because everything that the character's actions have been are on par with the culture that has been created. And so if, if Kubrick is saying anything, he's saying the culture is what 
has related has resulted in all of this. Mm. Yeah, not these men. Exactly. Yeah, they they are they are the result of what the culture has. The culture of war fighting. The culture of creating soldiers is what I mean. But yeah. All right. Well, we are going to wrap up a couple things. One, I mentioned earlier that there was a podcast that I had gotten a lot of information from and that I really enjoy. This episode ended up being two hours. Theirs is actually three. So if you want even more in-depth conversation about Full Metal Jacket, I highly suggest you check out the science fiction film podcast by LSG Media. I know that sounds weird. They do stuff other than sci-fi now, but it's too late to change the name. Um, I love all of it. Dean, Matthew, and Josh go through the film very in-depth. And Josh uh, was a Marine officer, so he's got like some added perspective to it that goes even more deep than what I can give. So I definitely suggest you check out their episode if you love this movie as much as I do. Final thoughts on Kubrick Month, Patrick. This is the second time we've done this. Last, last year we did Christopher Nolan. I got a couple questions. One, what do we think of Kubrick? Do you like him? And try to, we'll try to keep this brief. Do you like him better now or do you like him worse now after going through these? Well, I can definitely respect him as a director because each one of these films and looking at his other movies that we haven't covered, uh, for instance, Spartacus, he is diverse. I mean, he is not just a one-trick pony when it comes to the styles and the genres of film that he decides to dive into. And what I dig about him the most is the fact that he puts his own particular spin on each one of those, that there's a commonality that exists in all of these movies that we watched. Uh, Not only from a visual point of view, that he takes a lot of time to set up his shots and to create a sense of space, uh, (laughs) particularly in Odyssey, uh, no pun intended or all pun intended, whatever you want to call it. But the fact that he's very intentional with the way in which he tells his story and he's purposeful. I mean, all four of these, I think the shining probably less so than the others, but you can make an argument for it. All have some kind of commentary to make about the world around them. And I think that Kubrick feels like this is me projecting my own thoughts on who he might be, but that he was a guy who, I think felt like he wanted to have purpose with his movies. And so for that reason, I absolutely like him better from a stylistic point of view. There's still things about all of his movies that I find a little annoying. I think he hangs too long on certain shots that he feels are really important and it kind of annoys me, but not enough to make me say, don't watch these movies. And there are movies that I will avoid. I will avoid things like a clockwork orange because it's, some from a subject matter standpoint, he does things in it that I know about that I don't want to put myself in front of. I want to watch Spartacus. I want to watch eyes wide shut, which was his last feature film uh, just to finish out his filmography. I don't know the extent of, of the subject matter of that one particularly, but it may be. um, I think you might want to do a little research. Okay. Well, I will. I mean, if it's one of those that, I mean, if it's anything like these, you know, like, um, it's about a husband and wife who get involved with an underground sex cult. Okay, well, I'll probably avoid that one. Then. I think you would probably not enjoy that one. But in any case, I think that he puts, in particular, I want to see Spartacus because that's his earliest one. And I want to see if some of the things that we've seen as we've gone through his filmography found their infancy in Spartacus, if he injected some of those styles into that. 
Yeah, me too. I actually want to see Spartacus as well. And I actually do want to see Eyes Wide Shut because I'm all about the underground sex cult. Um, but I don't think I, I've never seen, I'm joking. Uh, I've never seen A Clockwork Orange and I don't have any desire to see it either. I know I've seen pieces of it, but it's just, I don't know. It's got that wackiness aspect to it. And I know it's hyper violent and it's just not something that's ever, I've never found it intriguing. I have a, a much superior respect for him as well, especially as, like from a filmmaking standpoint, from a genius standpoint. He's a master at this, and he is one of the greatest to ever do this. And whether you enjoy his films all the way or not, his craftsmanship is, to me, unquestionable. Uh, I think of him as the kind of filmmaker who likes to just say, okay, I'm going to pick a genre I'm going to go do that next. I'm going to make the best film that's ever been made in that genre. And I feel like that's his approach that he went into this with. He was like, oh, I'm going to go make the best sci-fi film ever now. Now I'm going to go make – I've waited. He waited until everybody else made their their Vietnam War movies because he was last. And then he's like, okay, everybody made their Vietnam War movie. I'm going to go make the best one now in his mind. Like I'm going to go make mine. And I really love him uh, and I love that about him. So he has given – I mean – while Doctor Strange kind of came down for me a little bit this time around, the other three that we've covered, Full Metal Jacket, Space Odyssey, and The Shining, all are much more elevated than I even remembered them. And I've I've had a blast with it. I, I want to seek out more information about him, whether that's watching documentaries or reading about him and his filmmaking and, like you said, watch some more of his movies. So it's been a success. Going forward, which do you like better? We did Nolan kind of out of order, and then we did Kubrick chronologically through – wait, no, that's backwards. We did Nolan in order as the filmography progressed, and in Kubrick we did out of order. Do you have a preference? I really don't because it's nice to see how early elements ble- bleed into later movies. But at the same time, because Kubrick is so all over the place with his genres, I think watching these things out of order didn't really – it wouldn't have been, I don't know that it would have enhanced or deviated my, my opinion of, of what he did. I think I would have benefited from seeing some of the common elements from his early films and how they played into his later ones. But I think the fact that he had such a wide range of movie genres, it didn't affect my enjoyment of seeing these out of order. Yep. I would agree with you. I, I didn't have any of that negative impact either. I, I do prefer i think going forward if we continue to do this which i hope we will uh, i would like to continue to do this and i would like to do more in order so i enjoyed that i think more so and i would rather risk going in order versus risk going out of order and having that question about hey maybe it could have been different but either way i love it this has been an absolute blast of a month and i'm so glad that we did it me too man and i hope we get to do it more in the future at the very least, it'll be every January, but maybe we can find some time later this year if we find some openings in the schedule that permits and it makes sense that we could add another director month. Definitely. I'm all for that. Well, Patrick, uh, where can people find you if they want to continue this conversation with you and talk to you about Full Metal Jacket or answer any of the questions you posed or anything of the like? Yeah, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, I'm at Shoeless Patch, S H O E. 
L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. It's best to at me since I, uh, I, I pop on social media probably less frequently than my counterpart here for good reason because he's the marketing and social media genius that I am not. So if you want to continue the conversation about this or anything else related to movies that we've covered or just stuff related to movies in general, be sure to shoot me a message, uh, tag me in something. Love to continue this conversation and uh, just can keep the conversation about movies in general rolling. Uh, the next two weeks, I will say I am very excited about. This is the time of year, every even-numbered year. I know you and I get pretty jacked about it. It's the Olympic year. And uh, this year, we are going to be covering two movies, sort of related to the Winter Olympics. <laughs> We're going to open up next week, right before the opening ceremonies. They're with definitely I related. Not sort of related. They are definitely related. Okay, well, one's a biopic and the other one's a biopic, I guess, too. So anyway, so next week we're going to open up uh, just before the opening ceremonies uh, with I, Tanya, a recently released biopic about the, uh, the story of Tanya Harding. Have not seen that. I'm excited about watching it. And I've heard that Alice and Janie is awful in it in a good way. So that's going to be pretty interesting because I'm a big fan of Alice and Janie and I've only seen her in positive roles. So hopefully this will not scar my opinion of her as an actress. And then uh, we'll follow that up with uh, the movie that I think you are going to be a first time watcher of. And that is Miracle, the story of the 1980 U.S. hockey team and their triumph of the of the uh, the Russians in the Olympics. Spoiler alert, you should know that already because that's day old news. So we're really getting, I'm looking forward to talking about those. Yeah, me too. I'm, I haven't seen that one, but I am definitely excited to check it out. I'm sure that I will enjoy it because I love pretty much all sport movies. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can find me all over social media at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E, especially on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find me tweeting out of the Feel and Film Twitter account. And then we have the awesome Facebook group that we've mentioned a couple times. Come there, join, talk movies. It's wonderful. Next week, we've also got, in addition to our normal normal episode coming a week from now, is a special mini-sode on Phantom Thread. So I am excited about that. It was my second favorite film of the year, and it has grown into my second favorite film of the year. I'm absolutely obsessed with it. I think it's amazing, and I can't wait to talk about that one. Also, last thing, if you have time, check out iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to us. Leave a review if you can. We love to hear your feedback, and we also know that it helps drive new listeners to want to check out the show, so you'd be amazed at how far that gets us. We would really love your help and your support. Thank you for listening to this. We know it's been long, but hopefully it was worth it. Until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling film.